Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with C-level company executives and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving the decision-making and strategy. My name is Wu Ho, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and today I'm pleased to have uh, with me Corning's Dr. Jeffrey Evanson, an EVP and Chief Strategy Officer, as well as Dr. Alexandra Boscovich, VP of Technology Development of Corning's Op- Optical Communications. Now, before we dive into our discussion, I want to level set the audience. Uh, Corning may mean different things to many people. A general audience is likely uh, most familiar with Corning's cover materials on smartphones, marketed smartly as Gorilla Glass and highlighted by the introductions of Ceramic Shield with Apple. However, I think the investment community is also zoned, zoned in on the optical communications business, which is about a third of sales and a significant long-term growth driver for the company. Uh, this is a business that has a lot of history and with more innovation to come. Uh, Jeff, Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Wujin. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, great. Fantastic. So. Uh, the way I like to typically start my podcast is with an elevator pitch. Uh, would you talk about yourselves and, and a quick overview of Corning's optical business and why it matters? Sure. Uh, I'm Jeff Evenson. I've been at Corning for uh, just over 11 years. Uh, prior to Corning, I was a senior analyst at Sanford Bernstein, where I covered data networking. And prior to that, I was a partner at McKinsey. And uh, at Corning, I have focused on our broad strategic initiatives and uh, participated in many of our businesses, including optical communications. But what really jumps out to me when I think about Corning is our long history of life-changing innovations. The glass sleeve for Edison's light bulb, uh, picture tubes for the first television, optical fiber, Uh, the substrate uh, that goes into catalytic converters that we celebrated the 50th anniversary of earlier this week, uh, and Gorilla Glass, to name a few. Uh, A couple common things about all of these inventions. Uh, They're based on transforming basic raw materials into precision components that solve a, a tough challenge for our customers and really, when you, when you step back, help move the world forward. You know, let me give you an example. Uh, we innovated with glass and made the first picture tubes for cathode ray tubes for the very first one displayed at the World's Fair in New York. Uh, and today, we're the leader in display glass for flat screens. And to do that, we start with sand and basic chemical elements and we make uh, at the largest size a material that is chemically optimized for lithography, twice the area of a king-size bed or maybe a little bit bigger, uh, as thin as a business card, and locally flat to within 200 atoms without polishing. Uh, It's a really impressive piece of equipment. Optical fiber, we start with gases, and we convert them into a solid and make one of the most precise objects made by humans in the world. And we we do that trick over and over again. And that makes us one of the world's leading innovators in material science. Today, our products clean the air we breathe, contribute to decarbonizing the electric grid, 
connect people to information, services, and each other. Our products provide the window through which we access inter information and entertainment, and we help facilitate the discovery and delivery of life-saving medicines. And we're committed to advancing our long history by combining our unparalleled expertise in glass science, ceramic science, and optical physics with proprietary manufacturing and engineering platforms to continue helping our customers solve their tough technology challenges. Alexandra, you want to introduce optical communications? Sure. Thank you, Jeff. So um, I'm part of the optical communications division at Corning. Um, my job is to lead technology development with my organization. And really what we do is to connect the ideas that are coming out of research um, and kind of the more disruptive uh, concepts that we have and uh, develop them into products and processes that are re ready for manufacturing uh, to take over. Now, um, on a personal note, I joined Corning in 97, and that was a very exciting time uh, for the communications business. And I joined Corning as a scientist uh, just up the hill in our research lab, research and development lab in Sullivan Park. And uh, I was reflecting on my first job, I was preparing for this uh, podcast. My first job was to build a system, a com optical communication system test bed to test and understand the performance of a fiber that we were developing at the time. It was leaf fiber, which is still one of our products today. And that communication system was a state of the art. It was amazing, okay? It had eight WDM channels and two and a half gigabit per second per channel. That was 20 gigabits per second in one fiber. And it was so amazing. And you fast forward to today, and we do hundreds of gigabits per second in one wavelength. And a full fiber can carry 150 terabits per second or more. So it's truly amazing to me when you look, that's in a span of a little over 25 years, uh, how the industry has changed and evolved over that, that time period. Um, and for me, it has been super exciting to be part of a company like Corning that has participated on that uh, transformation. So um, in optical communications, uh, what we do is to deliver solutions uh, to help solve the problems of this uh, growing market. And we participate in segments like fiber to the home and data centers. Um, and, you know, like Jeff has mentioned, we are super proud about our innovation history, starting with the first low-loss optical fiber about, you know, more than 50 years ago. Now, I know that most people know that fiber is super important in bringing high-speed connectivity to homes, businesses, communities, but what some people may not realize is that fiber is also playing a critical role uh, in another very fast moving uh, trend in inside data centers. And those are AI uh, data centers and networks. 
um, this is this is um, a type of uh, sector and application that is growing very rapidly. I think we all kind of like to play with things like chat GPT, but AI is becoming kind of more pervasive on everything that we do today. And it will, in my opinion, it will grow significantly in the in the future. And it's creating uh, new applications. People use AI today in businesses. We use this in research. Consumers, uh, you know, people use to write better emails, better texts. And that generates a greater demand for bandwidth, a greater demand for an optical infrastructure in data centers, right? Um, and the more people use this type of applications, the higher the bandwidth that, that we are going to see, the higher need we are going to see in the future. But I guess we'll talk more about that uh, later. You have some questions about Sure. Yep. So, 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 so you span the, 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 uh, the telco to the AI, uh, you touched on your history. I mean, just really, really briefly, um, there was a lot of innovation. And before I look forward, I want to take a quick look backwards. And can you just really sum up or very quickly sum, uh, summarize the, you know, when Corning uh, brought in the fiber innovations, how it's produced and how it's evolved? Uh, over the past uh, multiple decades, is, is uh, from what I sense. Yes. So, yeah, the the innovation uh, that Corning brought to the table was really a uh, a manufacturing method for making a highly pure uh, fused silica blank that would allow the incredibly low losses that are required in communication systems. Um, and this this actually was uh, the invention was done in the 30s the patent got issued i think in the early 40s uh and it's uh, a process called flame hydrolysis where you're using um a flame to combine highly pure chemical uh, uh gases and liquids to form extremely pure pure fused silica, okay? And you do that in a cylindrical format. Now that was done for all the reasons uh, Corning was looking at making very kind of stable, actually delay lines uh, in the thirties. Uh, and when the challenge of optical communications came up, uh, that innovation found a different application, which was to make the blanks for optical fiber. So that's that's how we make those blanks. We use this process where we're de depositing incredibly kind of thin layers of silica suit on a rod. And we can also control uh, very kind of uh, small but precise levels of dopants that we put together with the silica, for example, germania for the core of the fiber so that we can create these variations of the refractive index that trap the light inside the fiber now as we've evolved over the years right it goes from the concept of an optical fiber to being able to precisely design those different profiles that we have to create the attributes that are fine-tuned for each of the application spaces that we play in. 
um, a fiber that is meant to go onto the sea on a submarine systems is different than a long haul fiber and may be different from a fiber that we use for a very short reach type of application. We've learned how to uh, bundle those fibers in cables that can have thousands of fibers inside without significant degradation to their attributes and how to connect Terraris and mesh them together. History that Alexandra just described is really interesting. It was flame hydrolysis as an example of vapor deposition. And we use that basic technique uh, to make uh, glass that goes into spacecraft windows, but maybe even more importantly right now, it's the foundation for the lenses for EUV systems that are used to fabricate the most advanced chips. So it's an example of how a basic understanding of materials on the importance of reducing impurities to get to ultra low uh, thermal expansion and other beneficial properties can be applied in multiple markets and we can repurpose and reutilize our knowledge to enter new markets and make a real impact. And that's kind of the, uh, the secret to Corning's strategy, I would say. Got it. So, so, all right. So, so the business today is about four to five billion dollars. Um, you touched on some of the markets because you provide some of the uh, uh, an overview of the end markets itself and the mega trends that you are pursuing each of those end markets. Sure. Uh, the simple answer is we report in our optical communications business in two pieces: the carriers. Mm -hmm. Uh, piece, which is about 75% of our sales, and the enterprise piece, which is the remaining 25%. And I think to think about why we do that, it's maybe useful to talk about why people use optical fiber at all. And the basic techno-economic criterion is related to speed times distance. So if you take the speed of the transmission and you multiply it by the distance, and it's greater than 100 gigabit meters per second, then optical technology wins. And if I think back to when I was at Bernstein uh, covering Cisco, uh, it was the early days of using 10 gigabits per second in data centers. And then to get to 100 gigabit meters per second, you need to go at least 10 meters. So the only place that people were using uh, optical fiber in data centers at that time was pretty much the end of row switches to get to a big router that would take things outside the data center. Fast forward to when I started at Corning, and it was the very early days of 100 gigabits per second in data centers. Now you can only go one meter on uh, a copper link and have it be mm -hmm. cost effective. And that was actually a driver of moving the switches from the top of the rack to the middle of the rack. So you could go both to the top and the bottom. And now we're going much faster than 100 gigabits per second in data centers. And that leads to even more optics. And I think, you know, we'll continue those trends. I expect to see some advanced cars on a five-year time scale uh, reach uh, the transmission levels and distances inside a car that they'll benefit from optics. You see IEEE developing standards for that right now. I think the standard, and when we get to actually bringing optical connections directly to chips, 
you'll see co-packaging of optics, maybe glass motherboards, a lot of innovation going on that by that, but it's basically the same type of techno-economic criterion that I described. Got it. All right. All right. So, so this, this, uh, we do have a financial audience. Um, uh, so it would behoove me to talk about, uh, the financial aspects of it. And to caveat this, I've actually been very optimistic on the long-term trends of the, the optical business itself. But if I look at sales coming into 2023, it looks like it might be down, uh, 21% and another 2% in 2024. And this is consensus estimates here. Uh, if I rewind back to the fiberglut days back in 2021, it took years and years to recover. Um, why isn't it the case today that we're not in another fiberglut and we're stuck at a $4 billion revenue run rate and, uh, you know, and, and could it return to growth uh, as we get past uh, some, you know, what, what caused it and, and can we get past where, where we are today and, and getting stuck at $4 billion in sales? If I look at the last 20 years of optical fiber, which is recovering from kind of the the tech bubble that happened around 2000, um, you see optical fiber overall growing at sort of a six and a half percent rate over that time on average. And the reason is that we move from long haul to the middle mile to and metro rings finally into fiber to the home, then data centers started using fiber. And there's this constant push of bandwidth growing about 30% per year in the background, optical fibers being able to carry more information, entry into new sectors, pushing optics into, you know, from the early adopters in a particular segment to uh, more everybody else in the vast majority. And we see lots of opportunities for that right now. Um, I think that coming out of the pandemic, that a couple things happened. One is there was uh, a shortage of optical supply uh, coming out of the pandemic. And as that relieved, you saw a lot of customers buying just in case, as opposed to the historical practice of just in time. We think that that led to some inventory in the supply chain. And we also think that due to some macroeconomic factors that there are customers who delayed projects. And the combination of drawing down the customer inventory and delays in the projects has taken us off the historical trend. Our estimate is that we're 30% or a little bit more off the long-term trend line, but we see multiple factors. Uh, increase in deployments for AI data centers, mm -hmm. uh, depletion of the customer inventory, and then toward the end of 2024, the beginnings of the bead program in the US to connect the unconnected. All of those are very favorable to us and we believe get us back on trend. And that trend continues into the long-term because uh, we have a long ways to go. For example, fiber in the US connecting homes is just around 20% today. I think that number goes much higher. Uh, lots of new data centers getting built um, and more fiber getting used in each of those data centers. So we feel good about the long-term trends in this industry, although there's certainly been a retrenchment for the moment, Lujan. Got it. So, so that, that makes a lot of sense, right? So essentially what you're telling us is that the normalized run rate historically has been you know, 6 to 7%. 
Uh, I know Corning has forecasted out to double-digit growth, but we're talking about more fiber density, number one, on, on the telco side. And then number two, uh, the AI side being becoming much more fiber rich as we start going from uh, copper to optical because of the high speed nature and the density of these of these new networks. Is, is that the right way of thinking about it on kickstarting the growth? I think that's a very good way to think about it. What I would add is that we tend to grow faster than the market and certainly aspire to do that through our technology leadership and our ability as the only end-to-end -end passive optical supplier to package our technology into solutions that help customers deploy the technology much faster and less expensively and in a much uh, greener way. Because when you use our solutions, there's, because we do a lot of the packaging ourselves, we use the right amount of materials for the solution. You need fewer trays and data centers. There's less overall uh, packaging that goes into uh, getting you the optics that you're actually using for your solution. And so you can also be a lot more precise about how you pull the whole solution together, right? If you're installing it on the field and you're trying to make that on the field, you're always going to build some slack because of human error. You want to make sure that you're not running out of cable length because you made a mistake and now you have to cut it back and kind of re-splice it and that it's not long enough. So you you do, you, you know, when you do these things in the field, you end up generating a lot of extra uh, kind of safety net kind of uh, parts for the cable and the connectors and all of that. And when you do that in the factory, in a controlled environment, you take that out of the equation. It's It's good for the customers also not only because it's a greener solution, they don't have to store that slack sometimes. Storing, depending on the size of the cable, you know, some of these cables can be fairly heavy. You know, you're talking about thousands of fibers here. They can be heavy. They don't uh, kind of, they don't coil neatly and small in a kind of cabinet, right? They occupy space. And if we can eliminate that, that's an advantage uh, for the customer. I think one thing that many investors don't realize about Corning is that when we make these solutions, it's custom to the customer. For our large carrier customers, we're actually integrated into their route planning software so that they give us the exact specifications that they want to do. We actually will make the cables and solutions for a particular neighborhood with drops at the right point. Um, and then we integrate all of that in our factories, which is much higher yield, much higher quality, right. much less waste, much faster and small into install because you just snap it together like a Lego set in the field. Got it. So, so I actually want to transition over to the technology aspect of it, Jeff, because you did mention that your technology leadership allows you to grow faster uh, than your than your peers, but can you just talk about some of the key technology differentiators? Because it seems as if you're you're a, a, a fantastic service differentiator as well, given your closest to your uh, your customers. But I want to start off with the technology, and then and then maybe some other examples on the service side that helps you differentiate from the peers. We're a leader in the piece parts. Uh, in the fiber itself, whether you want ultra low loss, whether you want a new fiber like our contour fiber, which has amazing bend tolerance 
and actually you can make much higher densities because we make a narrower fiber that's compatible with existing fibers and we're leaders in the in the connections themselves where you have to build a connector that has very low loss when you match and snap together two hair thin uh, pieces of optics so our ability to get a higher performance derives from the piece parts and our ability to smartly integrate those. Alexandra? Yes, and I, th I think, you know, to, what I'll add here is really the kind of what I want to highlight is the ability to smartly integrate those, right? We are really the only provider that has fiber cable and connectivity under one roof. So especially, you know, when you think about that you don't want to kind of provide the customers with the kind of a bag of parts with the fiber, the cable, the connectors, and they figure it out. You want to kind of put it together as a solution for the customers that is, makes life easy for them, right? Um, being able to play with the fiber, the connectors, and the cable all under one roof makes a huge difference, right? For example, if we think about fiber to the home, right? We have our edge distribution system, right? That is a system where you can, like Jeff said, we can work with our customers to really design that solution for them. They have terminals that called Evolve terminals that they can install at the poles when they kind of, or, you know, at, at cabinets as they are coming down the neighborhood. And what that allows you to do is that the day that you want to connect the customer, there is no need to go inside that cable anymore. Those terminals are installed. You have a pre-connectorized hardened connector that you can go and push lock connector and you just plug into that terminal. There is no need for, you know, a, a, you know, a technician with very little training can do it. It makes a nice satisfying click noise. You know you're connected and you can plug in your your customer, right? Um, this is, you know, that, that makes life easier, faster uh, for our customers, right? Um, and, and it makes it similar. We can do that similarly too in the data center environment. And in there we are talking about edge distribution systems. Um, same idea, right? You're coming into the data center with a big fat pipe of fibers. Those fibers are not all going to the same location inside of the data center. They may be going into different rows, different positions on the rack. And we can engineer those cables, that kind of, you know, full solution for the cable in accordance to the customer's specs in our manufacturing plants. Um, when they arrive at the customer site, the technician just needs to make the right connections, the right plug, the right connectors in the right places as they deploy that cable. Um, in data centers, we believe that that type of solution uh, can lower the total installation cost of our customers by about 20%. It can save the time. And I think time here is super important. Okay, because as we talked about, the world is getting denser, the bandwidth needs are getting, you know, are growing super fast. And it's just a, a challenge to deploy everything that needs to be deployed with the labor force that we have in the amount of time that our customers have. And this type of solution can uh, lower installation uh, time by about 70%. That's huge.
right? And as Jeff said, it's a question also of sustainability, you know, helping the environment. It's less packaging, it's less uh, waste at the hands of the customers, right? Um, and we believe that this kind of uh, pre-engineered solutions that we can do by having fiber cable and connectivity together can save up to 55% on our carbon footprint for those solutions. So again, this is a key advantage for us. It's having everything under one roof. And when I'm saying about the solutions too, is that you truly kind of thinking about how do I make a fiber that will work with the cable to give me the attributes that I want, right? How does the fiber work in the connectivity solution? All of that gets designed together and there is an interplay on how we put the technology together. Right, so, so, so the value proposition is just, is beyond the technology, it seems, the fiber itself, but the whole packaging, whether it's from uh, putting the pieces together, as you said, but also putting it custom tailored to the customer from, from a volume perspective and also to the needs perspective. So they have an ease of use from, from acceptance and installation. And the cost savings is not only from the whole turnkey solution, but also you get an additional cost savings on just-in-time delivery geared to the customer so they don't have to over-inventory uh, yes. the, the product. That, that's what it sounds like, the, the value proposition here. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. So, so, you, yeah. When earlier I spoke about inventory at customers, it's not in these solutions. Uh, those generally get deployed right away. Right. Right. So, so let, let, let's talk about uh, some of the market dynamics here. Uh, I'm a networking analyst at heart. Um, I, I, I look at Ethernet port switches, Ethernet switch ports, and copper accounts for about 96% of total switch ports. So, so it seems as if you have the opportunity to go from copper ports to optical ports. And you touched upon this, uh, Jeff, uh, that as we start going to 100 gigabits per second, uh, you make that transition from electrical, copper-based electrical to optical. Could you just walk us through the whole value proposition here and the opportunity here? Because we're starting to see, if I look at the technology curve, I see 1.6T on the horizon, right? 1.6 terabits on the horizon. So that's got to be a massive opportunity for you guys going forward. Yeah, and, and like Jeff said, right, you, you, we have this, it's, ac it's actually, you know, when you do the, the math of where this E2O conversion happens, right, you come up with this really simple metric, which is kind of surprising, but it's really, you know, it's a, a technical economical kind of uh, metrics, not just the technology, but it's the, con the, the, the cost of the solution, right? You can engineer a super complicated copper system to deliver very high, um, you know, bit rates, but it's too costly, right? So this idea of this combination of you can go 100 gigabit meter per second, right? Uh, is the transition, it's taking into account the, 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 both the, the, the technology and the, the, the challenges of the technology and the cost of delivering that technology. And you're right, you know, switches now, like usually if you go into a data center, the optics stops at the edge of the box for the switch. And inside the box, it's all electronics. But 
as you grow the switch speed speeds the gpus and the cpu speeds right you you raising the the bitrate for those copper traces inside the boxes and there are people today and we are participating and trying to understand how that's going to work in future right that they are talking about bringing the optics inside the box because those those electrical connections are starting to be on that kind of limit of where you see the transition from from electronics uh, to to optics i think in there the first step is to bring fiber into the box and there are ways we can bring you know take the you know silicon photonics is a big piece of that puzzle right you can bring the silicon photonics modulator and receiver chips from the front of the box to be very close to your switch and make those electrical traces uh, very small and you can use optical fibers to bring the cw laser source to that uh, modulator and back to the front plate of the of the box etc you know that's a kind of a first approach right but of course we are a glass company and again like jeff mentioned in the beginning sometimes we borrow from other businesses to innovate and this is an example of that right you can do it with fiber right but we can also use some of the flat glass that Jeff was talking about that is very high precision, uh, very controlled attributes on that flat glass together with a process that we use to harden glass for consumer electronics uh, ion exchange that we use in Gorilla Glass. We can use that to put optical waveguides inside a flat piece of glass. So you could imagine in the future that you would have um, an optic electronic board, like a circuit board that would have electrical and optical connections inside the box. And that's one of the programs we have today as an early stage program in research and development and working with customers to test out that possibility. Okay, so 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 this is actually very in intriguing because I've had uh, Broadcom on the show before. Uh, I've, I've been following closely uh, Intel's past uh, efforts in co-package optics and silicon photonics. But this time it feels like there's a line of sight to co-package optics, CPO, right? Uh, is there a time to market, and and is this an area where Corning can participate uh, go going forward? Because when I speak to some of the hyperscale cloud customers, uh, it seems as if they are taking into consideration uh, using co-package optics inside, not only on the networking layer, but but also on the CPU layer as well, based on the on the innovation. So so. Can Corning, is there an involvement in some aspect within a five to 10 year time frame? Absolutely, right? As I said, you know, there are things we are actively working with some of our customers uh, to fully understand how the solutions are going to work. There are things that are more achievable that are shorter term, like I talked about. It doesn't need to be this, you know, futuristic glass substrate. There is a lot that I can achieve with fibers uh, and specialized connectors that 
connect to silicon photonics chips that are made to connect to silicon photonics chips, right? There is a lot that can be done with that, and we it's it's a shorter term opportunity there. I would say that that's more in the kind of the one or two years time frame. It's happening mm -hmm. now. Yep. Um, now, when you look forwards on the five and you know, the glass substrates uh, as integrated optic electronic substrates. Of course, that's for the out, but it would be able to achieve a lot more than what uh, fiber harnesses can do inside the box. So we are also looking into that and working with customers on that. I, I think that's very interesting because when we think of Corning, we think of you guys as a cable guy, uh, a cabling company, and you're far more than that. So, so this actually parlays me to, to uh, the next uh, segment, you know, I, I cannot have a, a podcast conversation without a mention of AI. Uh, and, and you touched upon this right throughout the conversation, but could you just uh, walk us through the uh, Corning's AI opportunity? I'll, I'll start again. You know, I think what's happening in AI is the computational requirements for training large language and other advanced AIs is growing faster than Moore's law. So how do you overcome the gap between Moore's law and the computational requirement? You know, one way is you increase the number of chips. So we're seeing the number of GPUs in these big data centers go from the low thousands, and we expect uh, data centers with 10,000 GPUs to be built in the near future. Uh, another way is you share resources across those GPUs and basically make a really large supercomputer in the sense of a parallel computer. Uh, and there are different ways to do that, but all of them require a second network that connects the GPUs. It has very high transmission speed characteristics. Sometimes the distances are longer because you want to have fewer hops between the GPUs. So instead of going to a middle of rack switch, you go to a middle of row switch. So instead of one meter, you're you know, on to five or 10 meters. That helps out with when optics are needed. And I think all of the, the density that you need for that, the characteristics of the fibers that you need for that, the connectors that go with it, all of those are big opportunities for us. Absolutely. It, it basically, it's a whole new set of data centers being built in parallel with your traditional data centers and now not only you know that volume of what needs to be deployed grows uh, you know substantially right these data centers need to talk to each other and operate together so you also have a need for an infrastructure a fiber infrastructure that that connects all of those data centers and some of those those cables can be extremely high fiber count extremely dense right so the the you know the the density you know is becoming extremely important everywhere the amount of the you know we keep talking about this underlying kind of growth of demand for bandwidth, right? That people, the, the bandwidth that people consume continues to grow, never stops. And it grows at an alarming rate of 30% a year, more or less, right? And you start to think about, you know, uh, how we are gonna deploy all of that, how we are gonna make all of that 
fit in the kind of the available infrastructure that we have and density is super important it's important for the fiber for the cables for the connectors right everywhere i think the simple way to think about this for an investor is that we're constructing a network that didn't exist before and our opportunity is in the low single digits hundreds of mil hundreds of dollars per gpu uh for this new network so it's a very large opportunity yep. as these gpus deployed. So, so the sense i'm getting is that today's data centers in general aren't capable of handling these um ai data centers and the opportunity is one upgrades to new data center builds um with higher capacity that could handle a lot more bandwidth is is that corning's opportunity That's, there uh, uh data centers today uh are not built for AI type of applications. That's that's not what they are designed and built for. So when you think about AI data centers, you can kind of simplistically, you can think about a second data center being built uh, by the side of an existing uh, data center. What data centers do today is store information. You can search your information. You can uh, retrieve uh, uh, data that is stored on a data center, you you know that AI functionality is not built in in there, right? And that's a, a different different type of you know if you think about a data center as a machine, it's a different type of machine. And right? just to put some dimensions on that, we participated a few years ago in a large traditional web surfing type data center in uh, Texas, and the optical fiber in that data center was greater than the amount of optical fiber it took to pass every home in Dallas suburbs for fiber to the home. And now we're building a second network in those type of data centers that's even more optically intensive. So it, this is a really large opportunity for us. So from a financial standpoint, in terms of growth, uh, given the opportunity with AI and new data center builds, uh, when we think about the two distinct businesses, telecom and, and enterprise, uh, the pace of growth long term, uh, could, uh, could the enterprise grow faster than the telecom over the long term? That's what I'd expect over the medium and long term. I think that there, there will certainly be uh, you know, depending on the start and stop times of different programs, you'll see you'll see carrier exceed year-over-year -year growth rates on enterprise sometimes. But I think if you average over a long number of years, uh, it's likely that that enterprise will be faster growth for us because of these AI data centers. All right. In your prepared remarks, Jeff, you, you actually mentioned um, automotive. Um, but, but what are some of the other emerging opportunities in fiber optics that we need to take into consideration? Well, I think it's the, you know, thinking about what S-curves get extended. If I, when I say S-curve, I mean the sort of technology diffusion that you start off slowly, then you go really rapidly, and then finally uh, the end users get it and it matures and you move on to the next segment. And I think that, you know, the one that's hitting into pretty rapid, you know, potentially going up that S-curve are connecting the unconnected is the next big driver. Uh, densification of 5G networks 
uh, 5G uses one to two orders of magnitude per fiber, or excuse me, um, up one to two orders of magnitude more fiber than a 4G network because of the densities required to deliver the specs of 5G. We're in the very early days of getting those built. And then I think enterprise overall grows because more things move to the cloud and these AI data centers get built. So I think those are the big ones. And then you keep pushing to new things like the optical connectivity inside the box all the way to the chip, use of optics in cars. And I think we've probably just taken ourselves out a decade plus in that description. <laughs> all right. Um, okay, so, so I'm lucky to have both. Uh, both you, Jeff and Alexandra. Um, aside from the fiber optic aspects, uh, what are some of the cool technologies within uh, Corning that that have yet to mainstream? I mean, you mentioned something on the silicon layer and and, and, the, and the glass and the PCB and just driving all the wavelengths through there. Uh, is there anything that that could be really truly disrupted uh, to everybody from an innovation standpoint that we're not considering uh, from a Corning standpoint? Sure. Uh, you know, I we've talked about. Uh, use of optical networks in cars, I think that's a bit further out. What's happening right now is greater levels of driver assistance and moving to autonomy. There's the electrification of vehicles and glass actually plays a big role in those things. If you think about it, how does driver assistance happen, your car basically becomes a giant camera. And the glass <laughs> is the lens that you look out. And there's the visible wavelengths but also cars are using radar and LIDAR that have different uh, transmission windows and need different kinds of covers. And we're uh, an early leader in all of those. And the windshield of your car, when you have sensors behind it, becomes even more important that it doesn't break. Um, and if it's an electric vehicle, that being lightweight is a big deal because it extends its range. So. You know, we talk about a hundred dollar per car opportunity, whether it's a traditional ICE vehicle or uh, a fully electric vehicle, and you know, glass is the majority of that, whether that's interior or exterior glass. And we have a ton of innovations going on in that space uh, that I'm excited about. I think we've done a good job covering the optical communication side. I think in mobile consumer electronics, we continue to innovate in color materials. We're excited about the colored backs that were recently introduced by Apple. Uh, we have other innovations coming out in early 2024 that uh, have some real benefits in terms of durability and uh, extending battery life or enabling smaller batteries if you want to have a lower carbon footprint. Um, so stay tuned for that as well as what's going on in augmented reality, bendable devices, etc. We continue to make innovations that are used in the semiconductor space, and we're deepening our participation in solar and renewable energy and looking at ways to reuse and reapply some of our technology that was built for the environmental control systems on cars and trucks to actually use for direct air capture in cars and extensions of it to uh, large sheets of continuously produced ceramics that could be important for solid state batteries and are now being used in some types of green hydrogen systems for electrolysis. So lots of things going on that I'm tremendously excited about across Corning 
they sound like really different fields, but they're all recombining these basic three technology leadership capabilities that we have and our four proprietary manufacturing and engineering platforms. So more to come. That, that, that's fantastic. I, I think I'm going to have to get you guys for another podcast in the future to talk about that stuff. So um, I, look, I, I think we're going to have to wrap here. Uh, thank you, Jeff and Alexandra, for uh, sharing your thoughts. There was a lot. Yeah. No, thank you. This was fun. It was fun. Happy yeah. to do it. Yep. And, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we have a great lineup of guests in the future, similar to Jeff and Alexandra. Uh, so hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with the Tech Disruptors podcast and to get the new uh, episode alerts. Uh, with that, so long until next time.